Hello and welcome to the latest edition of How Might We? And I'm very pleased uh, this time to welcome Paul Matthews as the guest. And the title of the podcast is How Might We Change Behaviour? So, Paul, thank you for coming. And would you like to introduce yourself to the audience, please? Oh, hi. No, it's nice to be here. So, Paul Matthews, I've been in and around the learning and development game for 20 plus years or so. And in that time, I've written three books on L&D, e-books, numerous articles, spoken at conferences all over the world. So I kind of and, and I've spoken with a lot of L&D people in a lot of different countries and a lot of different levels of role. So I've kind of got a fairly wide understanding or background of where people are at in different ways and, and how they're involved in L&D and what L&D is for, I guess, what its purpose is. Um, okay. And that comes brings us back to that behavior change thing, you know, purpose. Yeah. How might we change behavior? And I think, as you say, that is probably the function of L&D, isn't it? It's, it's changing behavior to ensure that we get that performance that we need in organizations you know it's about making sure that people are able to step up to the tasks they're being given and deliver on those tasks so that the corporate strategy or organizational strategy is executed effectively so it's a making sure that people at the time they're needed have what they need to have in terms of competencies or however else you might want to put it so they can step up and execute that corporate strategy. So, so L&D kind of has to work on the basis that, well, what is the organizational strategy? Let's assume that's correct, because if that's bad, then we're all in a bad place. So let's assume that's correct, that what we've been given from on high in terms of the strategy to execute in order to achieve the vision for the organization and so on. So at an L&D level, what strategy does L&D have to do to encourage people to deliver on the behaviors they need to deliver in order to execute that strategy at a local level at their desk. And often people uh, can't do that. So that's why we have to say, well, how can we change those behaviors so they can do it? Okay. Uh, so that, you know, that, that's kind of L&D's role, I think, in many ways. The purpose is to make sure people can step up and deliver on the behaviors that are needed. And I think that the simple, we've, well, I mean, we obviously chatted previously before he kindly agreed to came on here and he said it's sometimes our role is achingly simple if you actually break it down to what we've got to do or what our role actually is and the purpose delivery is a little bit more complicated but the actual purpose of what we're doing is is surprisingly simple i think l and d quite often can overcomplicate things and throw complicated languages into the mix where perhaps it's not necessary i think that can happen particularly if they take their eye off the prize which is ultimately it's about behavior change now alongside that you may well have compliance mm -hmm. so that people need to uh, go through sort of compliance training in order to tick boxes for some regulatory body. And then some L&D initiatives are designed to impact morale rather than necessarily knowledge or skills or behavior and so on. So there's some peripheral stuff there, although compliance isn't necessarily so peripheral, but ultimately it's going to be about behavior change. And a lot of people get focused on the learning or the ability to answer an exam or so on and take their eye off the prize, the prize of making sure that people can behave in a certain way when they're required to at their, their point of work. And that even uh, occurs on the, uh, the compliance side, because it's all very well, yes, we've taken them through the e-learning or whatever we have to do to get them compliant and tick the regulatory boxes, but surely we still want them behaving compliantly, not just knowing what to do, but actually doing it. So again, we're back to that behavior change, even when you're talking about uh, compliance stuff. Right, yeah, because a lot of compliance is behavioural driven, isn't it? It's about to be compliant is to do things in a certain way, yeah, uh, yeah. with certain principles or whatever in, in it, especially around something like health and safety. 
which is well, there's that. And then the other side of compliance is, of course, knowing what to do, like money laundering or something, but actually, or bribery, but you may never come across a situation where that exists. So you've got to know what to do, even if you never see it in the real life. So there's those two aspects. There's the very visible stuff, like you mentioned, plus this other more kind of knowledge-based stuff, I guess, in compliance. Yeah, recognize it when it arises. So then you know exactly what to yeah, do yeah. when it yeah. arises. There's an interesting thing that I heard heard you say in a, a podcast I, I heard you on where you said, you think Ellen Decent, to say, goes back to what you're saying about take the eyes off the prize, is about not doing a learning needs analysis, but doing a behavioral needs analysis. Yeah, well, I, my initial start when anybody says we've got to do some training is my first question is, well, how, what do you want them to do afterwards? And, and that question automatically takes you into behavioral territory. So what are the behaviors you want? In order for someone to, to do the job you're asking them to do, what are all the tasks they have to do? What are the kind of things they have to do in order to achieve those tasks and deliver on those tasks that are delegated to them? So what sorts of things, what sorts of behaviors? You want a certain level of behavior around, for example, negotiation skills or rapport or handling difficult situations or... Or, or behaviors around handling a hand drill in a safe fashion, for example. So it's right across the board, this behavioral thing. So my question is always, well, have you figured out the list of behaviors you want to come out the other end of your training initiative? And most people haven't. They've got a list of content they're going to deliver to people, and they might even try and test that content or try and force them to memorize it with various systems that you know, give them nudges and reminders by text or whatever. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but they've, I think, taken their eye off the ball, which is what do we want these people to actually do? So as soon as you say that, you've got to focus on behavior. So I talk about a behavioral needs analysis as being the absolute first step. So then the question is, well, what behaviors do we want? And when you've done that analysis on the list of behaviors you want, then you actually have a reasonable chance of measuring the success of your program by saying, how can we see that those behaviors are there when they turn up? How can we see that they're not there? In other words, what criteria are we going to use to measure the existence or absence of those behaviors? How will we know they're happening or not? And that starts to give you an idea of how you can measure the, the output from your program. Because ultimately, your operations people are going to be interested in what people do. Uh, and if you send someone on a management course, quite frankly, nobody, well, perhaps, except perhaps the trainer, much cares what they learned on the course. What everybody else is interested in is how they function effectively as a manager afterwards. So yeah, it is all about that ongoing behavior, that, that functioning afterwards. And then links. I mean, I, I wrote something very short on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago where I said organizations or people pay for the impact. They don't pay for the training. Yeah. They pay for what it's meant to do to the organization. And it goes back to leadership as well. I mean, I've been, I've been in training now. Yeah. A long time and quite often been traveling away and you sort of go to these training venues or these hotels where there's five or six rooms and they've got different trainers and doing trip different things and if you see a management training i could probably walk in there and say if it's week what if it's it's the first couple of days i'm pretty sure i know what the content's going to be yeah and i i just don't think we should be delivering standardized content because as you say the behaviors required in different organizations for effective management or leadership will be different because the context of that organization is different and also where people are at, how that culture operates and all of those things. And, and I'm not saying there's anything intrinsically wrong with generic programs, but there always needs to be a customized layer, I think, put on top of them to suit the organization. And that's not what you get often if you just buy it off the shelf without that level of thinking what's going to matter to us. 
But more importantly, even if you do get a generic one, after that, you've still got to say, how do we need to keep that alive following a training course? How do we, because quite frankly, most of it's going to die quite quickly as they come out of that training room. Nick, one trainer said, I don't, I mean, I can give them what they get in the classroom, but quite frankly, when they walk out the door at the end of the corridor, most of it's gone. And the trainer was quite sort of sanguine about that and, and, but didn't seem to care whether that was the case or not, which, you know, so there's always that need for learning transfer, which is the, the key to behavior change. If you are seeking to achieve it through a training course is how do you manage that whole learning transfer piece? How do you set up the levers? How do, what levers do you have to pull to get that transfer and therefore get new behaviors? And I, and I think that's a bit that it's, uh, the, what you said about the trainer coming in and saying, well, I'm doing my bit. It's up, then it seems to be they can stop accountability from then on. So it's up to somebody else now. It's, it's out of my hands. I've done what I need to do. And I, I do think we need a much more sort of holistic approach to that journey from identifying the needs and making sure we've got a content that delivers that. And then how do we transfer that into the workplace? Because ultimately that's what we want it to happen. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a governance issue. And that's one of the reasons that very often organizations do little or nothing around learning transfer is simply because there's no single point of governance that the operational manager says, these people aren't doing what I want them to do. I think we'll send them on training. They go over the fence to L&D who does their job and puts them in a training room or whatever. And then they go back over the fence again and, and somebody else then picks it up and, and it, it, it there really isn't any one central point of accountability looking holistically at that whole journey and applying governance to it. And that's why I think it often doesn't happen. So I think there is a need for, I mean, no one else is going to do it. So I think L&D has to step up to that overall role, which, as you say, starts right back early at the diagnostics phase. And too often L&D is not included at that point in the process. And that's why they end up delivering generic content because they don't kind of have any information to do anything different. Um, yeah, I was, I, was, I was listening to, I was at a conference a few years ago and listened to somebody talk about, it was about performance management in public sector. And he was talking more about government KPIs and how we set them. But I think an interesting point he made was that when you set KPIs, the, the, the better KPI sometimes have, the requirement for more than one stakeholder, but it has to be owned by somebody. So he was talking about in uh, reducing road deaths. You could give that to the police to, to own that KPI. Obviously, they can't do it on their own. They have to have buy-in from all these different other agencies to actually help them deliver that KPI. He said that's a more mature way of looking at how we can do things around organizations and, and governments in general. I think it's worth thinking about the difference between accountability and responsibility there, which are two quite separate things. Accountable, that's the person who's going to be counted, I suppose, the person who's ultimately uh, going to be held accountable for a certain thing happening. But he may well make a number, or he or she may well make a number of other people responsible for certain aspects of getting things done. So you can be responsible for getting things done, but perhaps not ultimately accountable. So I think that's a separation that a lot of people don't see or realize is that difference between accountability and responsibility. I mean, that, that's a part of a leadership management uh, module all on its own about accountability. <laughs> yeah. I've done that many times. We're trying to get people to explain it. Like leadership is the first time you're responsible or can be held accountable for, or for what other people are actually doing, which is the first time it really happens in your career. So you, you mentioned levers within your previous thing about understanding what levers need to be pulled for it to be effective in that transfer of knowledge. 
Can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. I, mean, I, I tend to lean on the model that was developed by Dr. Ina Weinbau-Heidel, who's based out of Austria. I've known Ina for quite a few years now, and we've spoken together at conferences in different parts of the world. And I've reprinted that 12-lever model in, in my book and also my, my recent ebook on, on how to redesign training. And she did a PhD research and, and came up with this model of these 12 things that seem to be the primary things that the determinants of whether learning gets transferred from a training instance into the workflow and then operationalized in the workflow as as active and there are of these 12 three of them relate to the mindset of the learner and do i want to do it can i be bothered doing it even when i don't want to do it in other words a perseverance thing and also do i think i could do it given the amount of support i feel i've got available so those are the first three levers for example and then there's four that relate to how you design the program and five that relate to the organization itself, all the way through to the culture of the organization being one of the major levers at that point. So it's always worth having a look at that model of those 12 levers saying, given I'm going to do some training, let's make sure I'm pulling all the levers. But one of the really important ones, I think it's number five, is about relevance, because clearly if the content of a course is not relevant to users, they're going to be unlikely to engage with it and feel it's worth any of their time and effort to, to learn properly or to practice. And so what the first step is, as you said, really in the process is a proper diagnostics thing. If people aren't performing in the way you want them to perform, then the question is, well, why not? What are the barriers? What's getting in the way? So you need at that point a proper performance diagnostics process. And that was actually the subject of my second book on capability is how do you run that whole diagnostics process? Some people call it performance consultancy. Charles Jennings talks about, and their uh, 73 Institute talk about the performance detective. Similar stuff. It's saying, well, what's going wrong? What's not going right? in order to end up with the result we've got, which is these people not doing things in the way we want them to do them. Why aren't we getting those behaviors? Is it because they don't know what to do? Is it because they can't do what they want to do? You know, what are the underlying causes? Maybe it's an IT problem and that's nothing to do with them. Or maybe the mechanic just is missing a spare part so he can't fix the car. He's perfectly, he's perfectly competent, but in the moment not capable because his environment that's around him stopping him from doing it. And too often we end up sending people on training courses when they don't need training. They, they just, their environment is stopping them from operating well. So this is about processes, procedures, IT, and all the other stuff that surrounds them while they're trying to do their job. Often it's a mix of both. But you need to do that whole diagnostics process and dig into what I call the performance system to find out, well, what's wrong with the system? And is there actually a need to train in the first place? In other words, are there skills and knowledge missing? or is the lack of performance due to other factors? If you do identify skills and knowledge as being missing, then you can start saying, okay, we need some kind of learning initiative, but that still doesn't mean it's gotta be a classroom. Um, it could be all sorts of things from a simple job aid to a bit of practice, to some buddying up to, you know, who knows, coaching, mentoring, action learning sets, you know, there's lots of different ways to intervene. But if you do end up coming down all of that diagnostics route and ending up with a decision to put you in the classroom, then you've got to say, how do we make sure that what happens in the classroom transfers into behavior change? And so this is kind of, that comes back to the title of the podcast, how, you know, how might we change behavior? And the answer is, yes, you can do it with training, provided you put an appropriate wrapper around the training. 
but also there's a lot of other things you can do to change behavior. So if you've done your behavioral needs analysis at the front and that diagnostics process, you're then in a position to say, how do I deliver these behaviors to those people? Which is a kind of an odd question, an odd question, but it's a much better question. How can I deliver these content to these people? Because that content is what everybody or management gets delivered. The question is, how do I deliver these specific set of behaviors to those people? And then you're thinking about behavior change. How do people change their behaviors normally? Well, typically they start doing different things and practicing them. So how can we deliver tasks to help people practice those new behaviors? For example, how can we give them tasks that then they can do and then get some feedback from other people. So how do we generate these different circumstances to allow them to get the behavior change up and running and practiced enough so it becomes habitual and embedded and sustained over time? So that's just, you know, that's a bit of a, a bit of a rant about all that stuff, but you can see it, it comes from that behavioral needs analysis all the way through that whole process, through to design, through into delivery, and then ongoing after that. And I think it's the after that that's important. I was talking with someone earlier this morning and they said, oh, we got this one day training course. And I said, well, no, that's not enough. If you've got one day in the classroom, you've probably got three or four outside the classroom that need to also happen in order to get learning transferred. So you're talking about a four day program, one day which happens to be in the classroom, but there's four days of work involved. Because if you don't do the extra three days of work a bit before and a lot of it afterwards, practicing, experimenting and embedding that new behavior, it's not going to happen. So all programs should be talking about the whole program, not just the bit that's the event in the middle of it. And that's, I think that's something I've heard before where you say, you said, I think before we had your chat, you said, I've been banging on about programs for years and not sort of training days or training events. And I, I, especially if you're looking, as you say, at behavioral change, it rarely happens overnight unless there's something seismic that's happened in somebody's life. Yeah, it, without a road to Damascus style conversion, you're not going to get an immediate behavior change. And, and you can't, you sometimes get them in the classroom and it's a joy and a wonder to behold, but it's rare and you can't guarantee it. You know, heck, people have a heart attack and still don't change their eating and dietary behaviors. And you think, well, that's a seminal event. And yet <laughs> even that won't change behavior. So You've got to really think about behavior change and apply some of the science to it. And I, th- and I, I like the way you said, you say it's about, again, ongoing afterwards, because I'm a great fan of that we can do so much learning outside of the classroom and sort of the reinforcement and the support and ongoing. And, and I'm, and especially, especially looking at behaviors, I think experiential is one of the, the effective ways of going, ha- let people have a safe experience, experience feedback reflection and then try it again and then that becomes the habit because that's what we want isn't it? it's it, where eventually they don't have to think about it they just keep doing that all the time yeah well i mean most of learning transfer is as a result of what you might term informal learning in other words the learning that happens as people try and experiment and practice things afterwards as you say so you can learn the principles of swimming or riding a bike or, or rapport skills or whatever it is in a classroom but until you get out there and do it it's, that's when you learn a lot of other stuff that you can never, ever deliver in the classroom. And, and so that's something you've got to be careful of is, is the fact that you do need that practice out there in the real world. So it, it's really important that people get the opportunities to do that. And this, these are encapsulated within those 12 levers of learning transfer is thing, the, the things you've got to do to generate the activities. It was something I think I read on LinkedIn today, a definition of learning. And I can't remember where it came from, but it was something like light on theory, heavy on practice, 
deep reflection? Well, learning doesn't happen without reflection. And, and I did a work, bunch of work years and years ago on that and wrote a, a lot of articles on it and came up with an interesting model. I, I posited the question that does learning happen without reflection? And can learning happen without reflection? And most people say, well, no. I mean, there's got to be some sort of reflection at some level in order for people to learn because you're not going to get learning without reflection. And most people say, well, yeah, I'll go with that. I have no scientific evidence for that, but it seems like a sensible statement from our own personal experience. And then I ask myself the question, well, if we can manipulate the quality and quantity of reflection, can we therefore manipulate the quality and quantity of learning that happens as a result of that reflection? I think the answer is yes. And I actually came up with a, a five-step model that is based on other people's work. So I'm not in a minute saying I you know, claim this as my own, but if you, the, the very simple layers is I, I talk about layer one as being what I call unconscious reflection, which sounds a very odd thing to say, because, but it's the practice makes perfect. If you keep tying your shoelace, you'll eventually get quite good at it, but you're not overtly consciously aware of I'm putting this finger over that finger and putting that loop through there. So as we practice things, we get better at them just because we've got an unconscious targeting mechanism in our mind that's helping us get a little better each time, even though we're not consciously reflecting on the, the physics of what we're doing. Level two is when we do consciously reflect, what happened? How can I do that better? Level three is when we reflect, but then we externalize it to a colleague, to the dog on a walk, to the lamppost the dog is using or, you know, whatever. And in order to externalize that in internal reflection, we have to put it into words that are understandable onto the outside world. And that brings a whole lot of new neural network circuits into, into play. The fourth level is where you externalize it to someone where there might be consequences. Your boss, a coach, a mentor, someone where it's matters, where it might be judged. I'm going to think twice before I go and present this to my boss or whatever. So that's another whole layer of checking what you've done. And then the fifth level fits in with that old adage, the best way to learn something is to teach it. And, and I say that's not entirely true, in my opinion. The best way to learn something is to prepare the lesson plan to teach it. Because it's preparing the lesson plan that means you have to reflect on it in a way of how this content would be consumable by a newbie. And that's where you get the extra knowledge and thinking is having to put yourself in somebody else's shoes to figure out that material and how you might deliver it to someone. The actual delivery of that material doesn't give you many more bangs for your buck. So there's those five levels. So if you look at anything you're doing and learning, how far up that learning stack are you pushing people? Because the further up that stack you can push them, the more likely they are to learn and retain that information and use it. So if you think about it, if you just give them a PDF to read, it goes to level two and no further. No wonder that doesn't do much good and so on and so forth. Absolutely. So when you talk about things like actually, you mentioned action learning sets, that's definitely getting, pushing up towards like the, um, the threes and the fours. Where yeah, that's into level three and four. Yeah, Absolutely. somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, quite. We're thinking about it. We're giving feedback to people, but then yeah. we're coming up with ideas as well about what they might yeah. be able to do. So that model is quite a good way of looking at what am I doing in terms of a learning initiative and how far up the stack am I pushing people given that what I'm going to deliver? And then you can say, well, could I get another half a level or a level on top of that by changing the design a bit? Can I, can I, you know, amp it up a little bit? So it's actually quite a very simple way to look at anything you're doing and learning to say, well, you know, how effective might this be? It's quite nice to hear a simple learning model that doesn't take, it doesn't take years and years of reading to actually understand the language behind it. And underneath <laughs> it. So the amount of times oh, I'm just a, I'm just a simple farm boy from you. I just look at stuff and say, well, what works? 
you know, how can we get 80% of the results? I don't care if it's totally accurate. I just want something that's gonna work for now and enable us to move forward and do better at the basics. Because I think too, a lot of learning people get so tangled up with some of the new ideas and technology and, and they kind of forget the basics. And, and if we get the basics right, we'll actually make huge strides forward. Uh, but a lot of people, if they try and get the new technology and new fancy stuff, but haven't got the basics in place that are right, then it, it actually won't work, this new stuff. I think that's why a lot of these big learning projects fail is they haven't actually figured out the basics yet. And, I, and we'll go back again. So obviously, we're going to be talking about how we do learning. I think I'll go back to the beginning. And I think that is the question that we can ask at the beginning that is the golden thread that goes all the way through, doesn't it? And what is happening now? So we do the investigation. We say, right, this is why it's happening. We've identified it's a, it's a skill or a behavioral issue that we need, to, we need to work on. And then it means measuring the impact of what we're doing makes so much easier because we know why we're doing it and what's not happening. And we know what it should look like if it is working. Yeah, well, that, that comes back to that behavioral needs analysis I talked before is when you have a list of the behaviors you want as an output, then those need to be observable behaviors. And so are we observing those behaviors? Now, what's our evidence criteria for that specific behavior turning up in the workplace? How would we describe it? How will we know when we see it? And how will we know when it's absent? But that whole thing about delivering behaviors and how can we make behavior change? One thing I've been saying more recently is in order to get behavior change, you have to use what I call a workflow solution, not a learning solution. And what I mean by that is if you're going to quote unquote, deliver behaviors to somebody, what you've got to do is deliver to them a whole lot of activities spread over time that if they follow the instructions in those activities, they will end up doing those behaviors. So you can think of that a bit like the, the, the turn by turn instructions on your sat nav system. So when you plug Edinburgh into your sat nav, then you get, a, you get a blue line from wherever you are to Edinburgh. And you know that there's a bunch of turn-by-turn -turn instructions behind that blue line. You don't know what they are yet, but you have faith that they're there and you have faith in the, the AI that's developed those turn-by-turn -turn instructions that if you follow them, you will get to Edinburgh. You don't really have a choice. So what we've got to do is when we have that list of behaviors, which is our Edinburgh, our output, what we've got to say is what are all the turn-by-turn -turn instructions we need to give someone so that they inevitably get to Edinburgh or to those new set of behaviors if they follow the instructions. So there's two things that depends on. One is that we can design those turn-by-turn -turn or task-by-task -task instructions so that someone will get to the behaviors that we want them to, to exhibit. And that we've initially obviously got the right set of behaviors that we're trying to get to based on the strategy that we're trying to execute. So, and the third one, of course, is are they going to follow the instructions? Because you can give someone instructions and if they don't follow them, they won't get the results that are there. But if you think about it, a sequence of instructions that someone does over a period of time is the definition of a workflow. So a workflow is a tool that lots of companies use to manage the way work processes through their factory, through their offices and so on. And you need a workflow solution for learning in order to generate behavior change. You need a sequence of activities, an orchestrated sequence spread over time that people follow. And if you design the sequence well, and they do follow them, they will get to the end point, which is the new behaviors that you want them to do. It's inevitable. So you've got to think about that whole workflow. And within that workflow, you may well have a training event. You might not. 
but you may well do. And, and often I, I encourage that in, in ways, some sort of collaborative learning is a powerful thing. So some of the steps in that workflow might well be getting together with a cohort for, for something, whether that's a training course or collaboration or community problem solving or whatever. But you can still go through a workflow on your own. You don't have to be in a cohort or collaborative about it. I really like that concept of that workflow and, and looking at that as the, I mean, it's a language we're using L&D a lot is that journey, don't we? Sort of the journey. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. the whole journey. And of course, the thing that comes out of that is if you've got several hundred people, you want to put through a workflow over six months, which has a, a dozen or two dozen activities every month, you've got hundreds, thousands of activities to monitor. So you've inevitably got to get into some kind of digital solution to monitor that workflow, that, that orchestrated sequence of events, because clearly you want to have some early warning if people aren't doing what they need to do in terms of the activities. You need to be able to hold, hold people accountable for doing what they need to do, for doing all those tasks in the workflow. And also you need to be able to hold accountable their managers who are not holding the individuals accountable and so on. So you need that multi-level accountability in it. And, and that's the sort of stuff we built into our software as well. To manage that. I mean, you can do it with Outlook and Excel, I guess, but it would be a pain in the butt if you're doing it for more than, you know, a dozen people. So if you want to scale that, you've got to have a digital solution. And that's one of the reasons we've gone into that space. So, yeah. And it's, and I think I'll go back because you, you've obviously created this platform that people can use to do this. And I think that's to say that's using technology to enable us to do something, not technology is the answer, if that makes sense. Yeah, very Sometimes much so. Yeah. We look at technology yeah. as the way of doing something. I think, no, it enables us to do things differently or gives us capabilities or capacities we possibly yeah. didn't have before. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction. I hadn't thought of it that way before. But yes, we, we said, okay, what do people have to do in order to change behavior? Okay, here's all the things. How do we enable that to happen more easily than just doing it manually? It's like you could manage your company accounts on Excel, but why would you when you can get an accounts package? Yeah, it just makes you know, it. You could, you could manage this learning workflow or this behavior change workflow without Look and Excel, but why would you when you can you know, get a package to help you administer that and, and pull all the right MI and reporting off? Because a lot right. of it is about holding people accountable over time to a set of standards that is consistent across the organization. And typically, digital is a great way to achieve those sort of things. I say about the scalability, it doesn't matter if your organization is 500 or 5,000, if the scalability in the system, that process will work all the way through for yeah, yeah. others of numbers. Or even bigger, like some of our customers. So, yeah. So that's an interesting concept because I mean, a lot of times we talk, I was talking to a guy who's into, does gamification in learning. Um, yeah. And he does a lot of it. And he says that the issue is people think that the, they think the tech is the answer. It's not. It's, it's designing the games effectively is the core. Yeah. The tech just means, oh, well, I can do it face-to-face -face, or I can do it virtually or I can do it this way or I can do it that way. Yeah, but yeah. you've got to understand, as you say, the basics of what needs to be in place for it to be effective. So what you'll find with a learning workflow or a behavior change workflow is probably a better name for it, mm -hmm. is one or two of those tasks along the way might, might well be that well-designed game. Yes. So it's not you're not sort of excluding any of the technologies that are out there. It's just that you're saying, which sequence of tasks do we need to put together in the what sequence in order to get the behavior change we want. And one of those tasks might be go and play this game or go and consume this bit of e-learning or go with three colleagues and go and do this or watch this movie 
or you know whatever it happens to be. We go and sit in a corner with a drink and contemplate your purpose as a manager or whatever. So they might be reflective tasks. They might be very active tasks. They might be tasks to go and consume something, tasks to then reflect on that and so on. So it is all about designing all of those different tasks, which can include obviously a classroom event. And you're quite right, some of the games. So it, it doesn't rule out all those new technologies or the new ways of doing things, but it tends to pull them together into a holistic journey that actually matters and makes sense. And I, and I, and I think that's where I really would like learning to go is to think that holistic journey and not rely on one or two solutions that we normally do. As you say, training and a bit of coaching. Training followed by coaching That's what we usually do. It, it works. Well, both yeah. of those are have their merits and they can work, but is yeah. there anything else we can do? Is there anything else we can add in, take out what else? And have well, generally good- what you, what you miss then, if you focus on that is you miss pulling all of those 12 levers that, you know, Weinbau Heidel talks about. And to me, that's critical. You've, you've got to, you've got to go and look at all of those and say, how do we, how do we do this? And some of them can be pulled by the trainer in the classroom. Some of them need to be done by the organization. Some of them are collaborative, but you've got to, before the program, you've got to stop and think, how do we deal with all of these? You know, who's going to be responsible? And, and that's that single point of governance I was talking about before is, is how do we get that in place? And a nice model to use is those levers. That's a great place to start that governance conversation is who's going to do what? who's responsible and who's accountable. Uh, it's the RACI chart, R-A-C-I, you know, against that, those 12. So, yeah. So it sounds, this is considering, and I think it's pushing L&D into sort of project management sort of fields of looking at what we're trying to do with, with this as a project and across that requires stakeholders from across the organization to collaborate with us maybe leading it, but not being actually, we don't do everything, but we lead and we facilitate and we collaborate and we coordinate the process and and, the, and and the activities around it to deliver that outcome. Yeah, I I think it it comes from that initial diagnostics phase. Mm-hmm. Is you can do your diagnostics, and if you say, well, hang on, eighty percent of the problem here is an operational problem because of procedures or IT or something else. There is a learning need, but it's only a small part of the overall solution required. Then L and D becomes a supplier to that project but the project manager shouldn't really be L&D at that point. It should be someone in operations. If that situation is reversed, where the vast majority of what has to happen to provide a solution does need to be a learning initiative, then perhaps L&D should be managing that project with assistance from other parts of the organization. But again, you do want that central governance point, whoever picks up that, that role with different parts of the organization supplying into that. And I think that, again, goes about a lot of organizations, and I quite like the way you described it, is oh, it's over. Now we're going to throw that over to L&D to deal with, and they've done their bit. They're going to throw it back to somebody else to deal with, and this yeah. it's like a hot potato. And people say, oh, I've done my bit. Boom, it's down to you. And it's, and then Yeah, uh, David Wilson at the Fosway Group has described it many, many years ago. He described it as the conspiracy of convenience, which I think is a lovely phrase because it's the, the manager is convenient for them because they just say, my team are broken. I'll just give them to L&D and then I've done my bit. I don't have to do anything else. L&D will fix it. They go over the fence. L&D says, well, my job is to put them in a training room and train them and then throw them back over the fence. So I've done my bit. And, and nobody's kind of holding anybody responsible, but each of those individuals is getting what they want. It's not what they need necessarily. Then that's the problem, but they're getting what they want. The managers, you know, gets a pat on the back for sending people off for training because 
how can you be wrong by sending people for training? And L&D gets a bit of budget to go and deliver some training, which they love doing. So it's the conspiracy of convenience. It's, yeah. And it's, that's a problem in a lot of companies where you don't get that, that governance level overlooking what's happening. And I think, I think I've heard you say something else I think is, is quite important in allowing for that governance to enabling that governance is the brand of L&D within an organization, the importance of oh, yeah. Yeah. The importance of brands. So how do people perceive L&D and that, that, that makes it easier or harder for them to actually pull those levers or encourage people to pull them? Yeah. I've talked a lot about the brand of L&D, and, but brand and reputation are similar but different. And again, people get those two mixed up. But yeah, L&D has to be, if its brand is not helpful, then it can be a hindrance if people just, I, one of the ways I describe it is if Look at what people come to L&D to ask for, and that will give you an idea of what they think the brand is. If they only ever come and ask for blue widgets, they think you're a blue widget shop. Even if you've got shelfuls of red widgets, they're not going to ask for them because the brand doesn't include red widgets. So look at what people come to L&D and ask for will give you an idea of what the brand is. And But then you also have to think, well, there's so much more we could deliver as L&D. If you could do it, would you want to? And most L&D people spend, oh, absolutely. I'd love to be able to deliver more. It's just I never get asked for it. Okay, well, that's a branding issue. And so you need to be able to say, these are all the things I can do and could do and start interacting with the organization differently. But that can take a, yeah, a little bit of strength sometimes because the organization has a view of who and what L&D is and tends to kind of like to keep them there because they're an understandable quantity in that world. So there's that need to break out of the straitjacket that the rest of the organization and the culture there has imposed upon L&D because of history and because it's convenient. So, uh, but brand's a big one. And there's some real simple and quick ways to start shifting the brand of L&D. And it's not, by the way, a new name or a new logo. Oh, no, that's, that's a discussion. We, we, that's, we, we got involved in discussion there on LinkedIn. That was mainly as a thought exercise for people to actually think about what is the purpose. So to people, yeah, yeah. Think, if you had to create a logo and you had to create a tagline about the purpose and what you deliver just to help people think think that through. But yeah, you can rebrand if you want to, but then there's, there's got to be tangible actions underneath that that are different from what we used to do so that the brand actually has gained its own. Yeah, one, of the, one of the ways to think about brand that's very useful is it's the promise you make to your audience. So in other words, when the audience sees that brand, they think there's a promise attached to it on, on how things will be delivered, how that brand will behave, what service they'll get, what quality they'll get and all of that. So it's the promise. And of course, if you develop a brand and market it as this is our promise, but then you don't deliver on that promise at the touch points, then your reputation will suffer. So your brand is there and the reputation is they don't live up to their brand. And that's reputation, how that difference, the reputation comes from what happens at the touch points. And that needs to be congruent with the brand that is being marketed to the audience. So you need those two to be congruent and without a disconnect. But a lot of it is just starting to saying, well, this is who we are and this is what we do. Whether you change the name or not, it's almost irrelevant at that point. And of course, if you change the name, then don't change what you do. It's just a completely wasted exercise. You just look like a flake. And there are many organizations that have done that as well, aren't there? Yes. That's the easy thing. Yeah. Change, change the facade of people who think it's different. And then they'll look and say, no, nothing's changed really. So you're just, again, and that's that trust issue gets damaged massively about the trust. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where the trust in the brand comes from, the the consistency of the behaviors and the actions underneath it that support what the brand said it should be doing. Yeah. Um, and then people will trust you to deliver on what you're saying, which is 
partly so one of the activities I ask people to do is that if your job was up for election write write the manifesto yes write yourself a manifesto what are you what do you stand for and if the electorate are the organization senior management middle management and the employees at all levels what are you going to deliver what are you promising why would they vote for you yeah that's a good exercise I think and a lot of that, 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 I mean, that comes back, that whole value proposition thing is something I often do with L&D strategy with, with organizations is in order to create the strategy, they have to go through a value proposition exercise. And there's something that any marketer would do kind of by default. I mean, marketing does it all the time. What is our value proposition to our audience? You know, what do they need and how can we service that need? And if we can't be of value to them, then who are we? So the question is, well, what is the value and how can we offer it? to them in a way that they can consume that value effectively so it has meaning for them. So that value proposition exercise is really important and that's, that's, it's quite a wake-up call, but very, very similar from, to, to what you're saying in terms of your, your manifesto, same kind of deal. It's yeah. just a slightly yeah. different way of looking at it. Yeah, I think because it helps you look outwards and it rather than they've, yes, they've correct. ourselves, we've got to say, okay, who are the people? What do we actually stand for? Yeah. Why would they choose us? So we've got correct. to really... It yep. changes that perception. And if you start looking, as you say, from the, the top part of your, the, the reflection is if we start looking at something from a different perspective, it quite often gives us a deeper level of understanding. Yeah. Uh, because it, it just forces the way we look at things differently. So I, there was something else I was going to ask. I completely forgot what it was. Shows you how bad, bad an interviewer I am as I just get lost in these conversations and I have a train <laughs> in my, I have a thought in my head. I think it's a bit like well, it's been hugely, It's been hugely fun and I think we've, we've covered quite a bit of ground. So We have indeed. No, we, we, I think we've covered the whole gamut of where L&D is and needs to go. It's just something interesting. I saw a report from MindTools last week, I think it got released, saying that senior management really want L&D to step up to the plate as looking at the longer term programs and deliverables for the organization. So things like change and transformational, digital transformational support and digital change. And the feeling within management generally, again, with this as a a high percentage management feel that L&D themselves concentrate too much on short term transactional change within organization. That's often the corner that the organization has pushed them into, though. I wouldn't say that was, and it's somewhat self-imposed, but it isn't always their fault, inverted commas. So, and, but they can break out of that corner. There are ways to do that. And that value proposition, your manifesto, those are some of the starting points of that. Yep. and thinking about their purpose and raison d'etre within the organization. And, and I often hear these surveys, well, management wants this. And then the next day, the manager who said they want L&D to be a lot more strategic and long-term thinking goes down and says, I want a one-day negotiation skills training tomorrow. And so the, the behavior of those managers, despite what they say, is often still just based on the old paradigm. So there can be a little bit of work to break out of that. I, th- um, I think there is. I think L&D can take, instead of being a passive actor and waiting for it to happen, as you say, the things like your uh, value proposition allows... L&D yeah. start taking that, taking those positive steps to make that, start making that journey to move them to no, agreed. the organization. Yeah. Don't wait for it to happen. Start doing it ourselves. We want, as you say, most of us in L&D want to make that huge difference and want to be able to do a lot more. So it's about us banging our drum and understanding what we can do and start getting the message out there and people to understand what we can do. Yep, agreed. Okay, so on that positive note about drum banging <laughs> and changing L&D, which is obviously what we're both into in that it was an absolute pleasure speaking to you and again thank you very much for your giving up your valuable time you're very very welcome 
And if anybody wants to download any of my stuff, there are, I've got a personal website at paul-matthews.com. And you can go there and there's a whole bunch of free downloads, including that ebook and the 12 levers. Um, and there's even some books to buy if you want them. But, uh, and I've bought them and they are good reading. So I would recommend them. <laughs> okay, there you go. Thank you. You're more than welcome. And so what, that's uh, that. And, and obviously get in touch with me or link up on LinkedIn if you want to learn a bit more about the software platform and what we do in that space. Happy to just share and just talk things through. So always love just talking about L&D. Absolutely. And obviously, if uh, if you haven't got this on Podbean, so Podbean where this is hosted, if you go to the Podbean page on there will be all the links that uh, Paul's talked about. So you can just click on that and visit the sites and do whatever you need to do. Excellent. All right. Lovely. Thank you very much for your time, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure again. Wonderful. Thanks for the, thanks for the opportunity to stand on my soapbox. <laughs> cool. Well, we, we're both on the same soapbox. Thanks for different views.